Good morning, beloved. What's that about favorite pastor, you know? <laughs> As your favorite pastor just said, uh, we do have a special guest next door because um, while, while we are light on a holiday weekend here coming into Thanksgiving break, if you haven't noticed, we have a lot of kids. I love that so much. Um, and we have the privilege of teaching your children, our children, about the way of Jesus next door. Um, and we need help with that because there are a lot of kids. And I want, I want you to hear me clearly. This is the ask. I'm asking for you to help with that ministry. Uh, we need more people to help with that uh, this morning. Um, we were going to have four, but one of our elders uh, fell sick this weekend. Um, so we currently have three of our elders serving, just filling in some gaps Woo! next door. That's right, yeah. <laughs> um, which is beautiful. I love, I love the hearts of, of leadership at the highest level in this church, uh, but we really need more people to step in and fill some gaps next door in kids' ministry. There are a lot of them, um, but what we do not want is for you to just go over there and control the chaos. Uh, we want you to go over there and disciple children in the way of Jesus. And so would you pray about that? And would you um, let us know um, that you're willing to step into that because we really do need some help. So please help with that now. Um, as your second favorite pastor, let's get to the word of God. Um, <laughs> um, actually, I want to start with a story. Do you know who John Kevin Hines is? No? Um, that's okay. Um, John Kevin Hines was, a, a, he was adopted as a young man. Um, so he adopted as a young man, and then a little, a little while later, he became an epileptic, um, suffered, suffered from seizures, and then ultimately was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And so in many ways, his life at a very young age was really, really hard, uh, really challenging. And then his high school drama teacher committed suicide. And um, with just how rough his life had been, um, what he was struggling with, that thought of ending his life became obsessive to him. And so it got to the point where at 19 years old, he drove to the Golden Gate Bridge and he climbed up onto the railing and he jumped um, to, to end his life. And the moment that he jumped, he realized he did not want to do that and he regretted that decision. Uh, we know that he regretted that decision because he miraculously survived. He fell 220 feet and hit the water at 75 miles an hour. Um, the impact of that crushed two of his vertebrae and he's fully clothed because didn't plan on swimming. Um, and so as he realized he wanted to live and somehow was alive in this moment, he's now starting to drown when suddenly a force below him starts to push him upward. And a rescue boat ultimately comes. There are eyewitnesses, and he's confused, has no idea. Obviously, he's, he's messed up pretty bad. But he lives, and the eyewitnesses say, not only did he miraculously live this fall from the Golden Gate Bridge, but a sea lion had swam up and was pushing this young man to the surface so that he could catch a breath every time he fell down below the water. Like, what a second lease on life, right? And so he changed everything for him that now he is a suicide prevention speaker. He founded an organization that provides funding and education for suicide prevention because he thought that he wanted to end life and instead in this miraculous way, he's given a new chance and a new hope for life. And he wants to share that with the world. The life he has been given, he wants to give to others. And I want us to take that story into the text because today we're going to finish Philemon. I thought it would be clapping. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? It's exciting. It's exciting. Advent is, is upon us. But um, Philemon, you're like, oh, wow, this guy, really, 11 weeks and a 25-verse book. But that's, that's, that's what we did, and I loved it. I hope you did too. But today we're going to finish it up. So if you want to turn in your copy of scripture, it's also going to be on the screen behind me. But Philemon, uh, picking up in verse 20, 
And to, to summarize and get us to verse 20, um, Philemon is a slave owner. He's a man of means. He has a home that can host a church. And so it's apparently pretty large. And he owns at least one slave, if not multiple slaves. One of them is named Onesimus. And Onesimus, at some point, decided he did not want to be a slave. And so he ran away from Philemon. He's a runaway slave. And he encounters this missionary to the Gentiles, this church planter, trying to plant churches across the known world at the time, who's named Paul. Uh, We know Paul. He wrote many of the New Testament epistles. And so Paul is this guy who had this radical conversion and is trying to share the gospel with the whole world. And so Onesimus encounters Paul, becomes a Christian. And so now Paul views Onesimus as like a spiritual son. And yet Paul is also connected to Philemon somehow and views him kind of like a spiritual son. And so you have this weird triangulation happening here to where Paul now has Onesimus with him as a runaway slave, but he knows that runaway slave's master. And so he's writing this letter that we call Philemon to Philemon to say, hey, I'm sending him back to you. Not saying slavery is right. In fact, it's awful, but we're gonna undo all the evils of this institution. You're gonna receive him back as a brother, not as a slave. And we're going to watch how this whole evil thing just collapses. And there's so much more here. And so he's made his request, receive him back in this way. We see the beauty of how he is strategically undoing the evil and all this. The gospel is how things change. And so he has made all these asks, and we're coming to the wrap-up portion of this short letter, starting in verse 20. So Paul is speaking, and he's addressing Philemon. Verse 20. Yes, brother, may I benefit from you and the Lord Refresh my heart in Christ. And so if you need to go back and listen to all 11 of the sermons, you should do that. But uh, just to, to kind of jar your memory here for a second, do you remember what we started with? That in the introduction, in the greeting, Paul is using familial language. He's calling people brother and sister. And why would he do that? Because remember, we have all been adopted into the family of God by Jesus. Jesus is the way that we have been adopted into the family of God. So if you are a Christian, then you are in the family of God and we are now brothers and sisters. And so Paul starts off, he wants Philemon to hear this language of family because he wants Philemon to remember, how did you come here? Grace. And so as I'm about to make a request of you and you could be very angry for how you've been wronged by this runaway slave, I want you just to remember grace. That's why you're here. Grace is why you're here. And now again, as we get to the, to the end of this letter, he calls him brother again. Philemon, brother. Yes, brother. May I benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. And it's kind of like a chiasm. He's throwing a lot of stuff back to the beginning because the next thing he says, may I benefit from you and the Lord. May I benefit from you. Do you recall um, back in the middle of this letter when Paul is saying, hey, you know, once Onesimus was useless to you, but now he's useful to both you and me. And that's kind of lost. A little bit of it is lost on us in our English language because Onesimus in Greek actually means useful. And so what he was saying there is like, once Onesimus was not Onesimus to you, he was useless, not useful. But now he's Onesimus to you. Now he is useful to you. And now Paul is taking that and he's saying that of Philemon. He's essentially saying, may this benefit where the the Greek root there is the same Onesimus. And so Paul is saying Philemon. Will you be Onesimus to me? Will you be useful to you? Will you be a benefit to me? And so it comes full circle now as he's made this request, Philemon, will you be Onesimus for me? And how can he be? It says it right there, in the Lord. Will you be a benefit to me in the Lord? 
in the Lord is how you can be a benefit. And then the next thing he says, refresh my heart in Christ. Because again, when he gave that prayer of thanksgiving at the start, and he's, it, he almost, you kind of view it like if you've ever done the whole, like the Oreo, like you got to sandwich these things to get what you want. But you start the conversation off like, you're the, I'm so glad I'm talking to you. You're going to be the person who fixes my problem today. I, I believe in you. Come on, Samantha. You are going to do so good. This is what I need. And then you make the ask. And then Samantha, I am so confident that you're the one who's going to fix this for me today. Do you know that tactic? No? Oh, come on. Like, yes, yes, you know it. All right. Like, is that what he's doing? At the start, he's like really kind of like just really setting Philemon up like you're, you're so, but what did he say there? Look back at it in verse seven. For I have great joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So again, he's pulling it back. Now he's saying, hey, the saints, their hearts have been refreshed through you. Now I want you to refresh my heart. He's making it deeply personal. So yes, brother, remember grace. That's why you're in this family. May I benefit from you? Will you be Onesimus to me, Philemon? No, refresh my heart like you refresh all the other hearts of the saints. Refresh my heart. And now, verse 21. Since I am confident of your obedience, I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Do you talk to others like that? I mean, sometimes, I gotta admit, I talk to my kids like that, and I totally mean it sarcastically. <laughs> like, you're gonna clean this room, and it's gonna be so sparkly clean, I just know it. Like, no, I don't. But, but, <laughs> that's not how he's saying this. He means this. Like, that's, that's a little convicting to me. That Paul means this, and what he's saying is, hey, exceeding expectations is my expectation. Like, what I expect of you is to exceed my expectations. Like, do you talk to people like that and mean it? Like, Paul is actually expecting to have his expectations exceeded. Like, he believes that there's that good inside of Philemon, that he's going to do even more than he's been asked. He's calling him up. He's calling him up. He sees something good in there. He's calling out the good. And that, that can be so convicting in our context because like, it is just so easy for us to slip into a culture of bitterness and complaint, right? Like it's, it's toxic. It just grows. Like you're, you're in this friend group and like it's so much fun and everything and then someone kind of starts like the, the, the Debbie Downer thing. And, like, it turns a little sour and next thing you know, it's like, yeah, and yeah, and, and, and yeah, and yeah. And it just becomes like, oh, whoa, this whole fun thing just became really, ugh. And, and there's a time, like, we're supposed to bear each other's burdens and we're to weep with those who weep and things like that. But bitterness is not godliness. And, and complaining, there's a time and there's a right way to, to make a complaint, but there's way more opportunity for complaint to become sinful and just hurtful. It's like spiders. Do you like spiders? No. No one likes spiders. Don't tell me if you do, because that's just weird. But <laughs> spiders, like, if I see a spider, here's the thing, like, I see a spider. I think this is true of all of us. I don't know. I may be making an assumption, but like, I'm not looking away from the spider. You don't see a spider and then take your eyes off the spider. Like, that's just silly. You don't do that. Like, your life's in danger. You keep your eyes on the threat. So you see the spider. You don't take your eyes off of it. But then when you do inevitably have to take your eyes off of it, what happens? There's spiders everywhere. Like, it's everywhere you go, you think, oh, that's, a no, no, it's not a spider. Oh, like the, everywhere you just think there's a spider. Like you encounter one spider and you're convinced that they're everywhere. 
Um, I heard a really, really just horrifying statistic about how close you always are. And so she's shaking her head, no, I won't share it with you. You don't want to know. You don't want to know. But it's bad. It's, it's bad. Spiders are everywhere. And so I, I'm, I'm really just ignorant in most spheres of life, if not all. But um, we had a lot of spiders when I moved into my house. And so we had to remodel a lot of stuff. And it was just like the, the backyard was like a jungle. There were bunnies living back there. It was pretty, it was pretty cool. Um, but we finally, like, we're starting to get things under control. And suddenly the house was out of control. Like the bugs, the spiders inside the house were just crazy. And so we ended up, I, I paid a guy, which really hurt me because I really want to just figure these things out for myself. But I eventually paid a guy to come out and do some pest control. And so he's explaining to me, he's like, well, the big thing with spiders is like they're up off the ground. Like they, they have those creepy legs and stuff. And so they're, they're up off the poison. And so they're not going to go just eat your poison. And they're not just like taking a bath in your poison stuff. They're up above it. And so that's the problem. That's, they're so hard to kill. And he's like, here's the thing. And he's got this like wand, like really long wand with a foamy looking thing. I don't know. It's like a long toothbrush. And he'd take it around and he'd just walk around and he'd just like, just mess with stuff. And he'd just rub every crease and crevice and everything. And he's like, the way you get spiders to get out of here is not killing them. Is you just make them move out. You annoy them, let them know you're going to get disrupted here. You don't have a place here. And you do that enough, and they finally like, well, forget it. I'm moving. This neighborhood's gone to pot. Like, they're gone. Like, so that's what you do. That's how you get rid of spiders. Like, why am I talking about all this? That's what you've got to do with complaining. Like, complaining sets in. Yes, right? Complaining sets in. And then it's like a spider. I like, can't take my eyes off of it. Now I see it everywhere, and it's just, it just grows. And all of a sudden, like, how do we get rid of this problem? This culture of complaining, this bitterness, how do we get rid of this in this church? You start telling stories of success. You start telling about the wins in life. You start just championing, like, this is good, this is beautiful. Do you see all the good that is happening? And every time you hear a complaint, like that's fire, you just rub it in. Like, no, 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 no. Like, have you seen this good? Do you know what's beautiful here? Like, do you remember the gospel? Do you know how loved we are? You just celebrate those things. It's like the spiders with the wand thing, the giant toothbrush. You just shake it up, and eventually the complaints are like, you know, I don't have a place here. And it goes. And we don't want to, like, I'm not, I'm, like, I'm not saying we have a major problem with complaining as a church, but just culturally we do. Like, culture at large. Like, it's just so nice to settle into some complaining. And it grows, and we don't want to be people like that. We're people of hope and joy. Like, Jesus came to give us life to the full. And so that doesn't mean we're dishonest and act like everything's great, like paint the smile on. Like, no, we're honest. But we grieve as those who have hope, not as those who do not have hope. And so let's, let's be people who decide, you know what, if you're gonna be in beloved church, like you, you may come with a real complaint, but you know what you're gonna hear is hope. You're gonna hear hope in response. And it's gonna help take care of those complaints and things. So let's be people like that, that like Paul is doing here, man, I expect you to exceed my expectations. Like, I, I see the good in you that God has put in you. It's not your own. Like, we, we don't just like worm theology like, oh, wretched man that I am. Like, yes, wretched man that I am. But who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to Christ Jesus. Like, we break out in doxology and worship when we consider how broken we are. We see the goodness of God and how he's not left me there. And now he has restored his image in me and I get to live in light of that. He's called me holy so I can be holy. And so we call that out in each other. You see the good. And so we don't, again, like we don't just say like, no, knock it off. Like there's, there's no room for complaining. Or there's no room for sharing your hardship. There is. 
But then we call out the good. And we call each other up and onward. That we love each other in that way. So like expect your expectations to be exceeded. And that's an amazing thing. You call out the good. Uh, Pastor Tim and I uh, talk about this just kind of rampant thing in our culture a lot. And I love how he says, he says, we have to choose to see with hope and be willing to be disappointed. And think about that in your relationships. Like we're going to choose, I'm going to actively decide to see with hope and be willing to be disappointed. Like so often we just want to safeguard ourselves from any kind of disappointment. Like, man, if I just lower my expectations, then I, I, Courtney and I use this a lot in marriage coaching. We, one of our main things, proper expectations reduces frustrations. When you go in that grocery store with that child, you need the right expectation and they need the right expectation and then frustration goes down. When you have that conversation that you know is not going to go so great with your spouse or whatever it is, a proper expectation will reduce frustration. But what is a proper expectation? It's not to just say, like, always expect the worst. Like, we're not Eeyore. Like, no. Like, be willing to be disappointed. And watch as people rise to that. And you know this is true in you. Um, there, I, I used to teach sociology, and I, I'd love to share with students about, like, you could, you could take these student groups, and you could remind, like, you do some things that could be really divisive, like, hey, we're going to take some, some colored students, and this, this happened um, in, in the last century. They'd take some colored students, some students of color, and they would have them take a math test, and they take some white students and have them take a math test. Um, but before the test, it'd be the same exact test, and they've received the same education up to this point. But the difference would be, before they took the test, the proctor would say, hey, you'll score however you score, but just know, like, you know, historically, blacks don't tend to do as well with math as whites do. And you'd watch the test scores fluctuate. Or you do the same thing with guys and girls. Like, you'd say, you know, girls tend to thrive in this, or boys tend to thrive in this, and what do they do? They rise to it, or they fall to it. It's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy, that we actually are greatly affected by the expectations of others. And so what do we want to do as a church? We want to call people up. Like, like Paul, I expect that you're going to exceed my expectations. Like, call out the good. See it, celebrate it, because again, like the spiders, we have to disrupt the complaining environment. Like, call out the good, celebrate things, and watch as that just grows. And that's beautiful, and we want that. So we are willing to be disappointed. We have a high expectation. Paul continues, verse 22. He says, Meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, since I hope that through your prayers I'll be restored to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my co-workers. That's some weird stuff there, right? It's, it's very personal because this is an actual letter written in a real time and a real place to real people. That this is historic. And that gives us a lot of confidence in scripture. This wasn't just conjured up, like there weren't a bunch of Christians years later like, hey, let's, let's write a letter like this and, and just manufacture some things. This isn't fan fiction. This is real history. And we didn't just remove the parts that are like, how does that apply to us? Sometimes there's great application from these little historic endings and things. But other times, it may just be like, man, thank God that this is real. That these are real people. And the people who received this letter could talk to these people and verify that these things are true. And that's, 
absolutely beautiful. What it also tells me, though, is everything that came before this, if this is historic, the way that Paul is talking to Philemon, the way that these people would agree to interact, the way the early church interacted with each other, in a way that was not, was not going to balk at calling out sin, it was not going to shy away from hard conversations, but also was going to press into those things in love and joy with high expectation, that that is a beautiful precedent for us. That we too should interact with each other in this same way. That this is real. And the early church was thriving, was growing in amazing ways, and not because of their wonderful programming, their great orators or any of those things, but because it was just real faith from faith to faith in local communities as people actually cared about each other. They loved each other. I love that. I find that so inspiring. This is the way believers really interacted and it's the way we still ought to today. This whole letter, Paul has been calling for reconciliation to see these friendly relations restored. And how can Philemon do this? As he said, in the Lord. It's in the Lord, brother. Benefit me in the Lord. Make my heart rejoice in Christ. It's in the Lord. It's in Christ. Our power to do any of this, anything that is transformative, is just in Christ. It's Christ working through us. It's God, his gospel, having a transformative effect on our lives. Not just us. And yet, he doesn't take us out of the equation. Like, I want you to hear this clearly. You matter in this church. Every single one of you matters. We need you. You have a place. You belong. You can be known and you can be loved. We need you. Look around. Like, make it weird. Actually look around for a moment. This is your family. We are a group of followers of Jesus who love our Lord and we love each other. Let it matter. It really does matter that we can, we can benefit each other in the Lord, that we can make others' hearts rejoice in Christ, that you can have that effect. That sometimes when we're in the dark night of the soul, when we're suffering, when we're feeling lonely, when we're feeling all these things, and we know, like, what? Who do I have in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire but you. Like, what we really need is God. And yet God says, watch this, I do that. I show up through my people. We need each other. Do so you know that, like, you go back to the creation account. Have you ever considered this? That God creates all things. He creates man, and it's just Adam. And for the first time in all of creation, when God ends some creative act, and he says, it's good. But he makes Adam, and he doesn't say it is good. He says, it is not good. It is not good for man to be alone. And so what does he do? Sleepy time, here's some surgery, and here comes a woman from man. The God, from the beginning, it's not good for man to be alone. And so he makes woman, and community comes about. Now think about this. This is when God is fully present with man. This is before sin has entered into the equation, and God would say, of us. It's not good for you to be alone. Like, that's kind of wild. That it is not enough for us to just be with God. Like, that can sound a little heretical. 
But God created us to be in community. He said from creation, before man has been separated from God, before sin has entered into the equation, God says, it's not good for you to be alone. And he creates another human so we could be in community. And we do not take the place of God. Do not hear that at all. We do not take the place of God. But in the beauty of God's design, we need each other. And we help each other experience God himself. As we are made in the image of God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit from all eternity, he has been in community and now made in his image. We are to be in community. And that is, yes, with God. That's so beautiful. Like, praise God forevermore for that. But it's also with each other. And that's amazing. We have so much weight to the importance of this, that we would come together in the name of Jesus and we would love each other well. And this is why, like, wildly enough, Jesus says, this is how the world knows you follow me. What? By your love for each other. That's amazing. So beloved church is why we name the church beloved church. So just be constantly reminded that you are loved. And when you know that you are loved, you can love others. We are God's beloved. And this guy jumps off of a bridge, intending to take his life, slams into the water. He is handicapped. He can't save himself, but he wants to live now. A sea lion pushes him up to the surface and a boat comes over, pulls him from the water. And what does he do? The life that he has been gifted with, he now tries to gift to others and sets out to do his best to show people there is life. What do we do when we have been given life? Share it with others. When you've been given the gift of life, you need to share it with others. We share this gift of life with others because we were created good. And then we rebelled against our creator. We shook our fists figuratively in the face of God and said, I'll be my own God. I'll decide what is right and what is wrong. That is so true of our culture today. Truth is relative. You decide what is right. Follow your heart. All these, that's nonsense. God decides what is right and what is wrong. He alone is good. He alone is the one who has all knowledge. And we decide, I want to eat that tree I want to eat that one. I want that knowledge of good and evil. I want to be in the place of God. The argument that convinces us, the serpent comes in, Satan deceives us and says, God doesn't want you to eat that because the day you eat it, you'll be like him. What convinces us to rebel against God? The idea that we could be like him. We want to be our own God. And this sin, this rebellion, fractures the relationship that we have with God, that you want to know why there's so much angst in your heart, in your life? Why are things so broken and painful? Why all the turmoil? Why is it that every time I think I get the next thing that I've been putting my hope in, that relationship, that item, that position, whatever it is, I think that's going to make me so satisfied. I'm going to finally have arrived. And you get it, and what happens? (sighs) I just need the next thing. It's just one thing after another because the eyes are never filled with seeing and the ears are never filled with hearing. It's this meaningless chasing after the wind, the book of Ecclesiastes says. You want to know why that is? As Lewis said, this God-sized hole in your heart that you're looking for something that cannot fulfill you. God alone can do that. You have been separated from God and the greatest longing and yearning of our lives is to be back with God. But we try to put so many things in his place, all these idols, thinking, it'll be this, it'll be this, it'll be this, and all the while God stands ready. No, it's only him. You're drinking from a broken cistern. Like, you think it's gonna satisfy, but the water's just constantly leaking out. You just flood it more and take a, take a sip. And, oh, I'm good for now, but oh, 10 minutes later, I feel dirty. I feel wanting. 
What is it? What will truly satisfy? It's be back with life. You're cut out of the garden from the tree of life. And God himself is life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You want to be back with life, but you can't get there. You can't get there. But life says, I'm coming for you. The gift of life shows up. Jesus, who is life, comes to you and says, here's life everlasting. Confess you're a sinner. Repent, turn from your sin, turn to me. Trust in me to be your salvation. Jesus takes our sin, dies having taken our sin on himself, nailed to a cross, and then is buried in the tomb. And on the third day, just like he predicted, he rose again, victorious over sin and death. And he says, now here's life. Believe in your heart that God raised them from the dead. You will be saved. That is the promise of scripture. And you can take that to the bank. You can trust God on his word that you will be saved. If you confess Jesus as Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised them from the dead. That means you have life. You've been given this gift of life. This is the gospel. This is good news. And what do we do with life when we've been gifted it? You share it. You share it. You see the beauty of that the grace in that, that you did not deserve it now, you've been given it, and you share it. We share this life. You share the gospel. We need community. We need to share this life that we've been given. I love um, the words of Charles Spurgeon. Uh, it's going to be on the screen. Charles Spurgeon, he said this, uh, in a, speaking of reconciliation, he said, our love ought to follow the love of God in one point, namely, and always seeking to produce reconciliation. It was to this end that God sent his son. Has anybody offended you? Seek reconciliation. Oh, but I am the offended party. So was God. And he went straight ahead and sought reconciliation. Now this is the power of the gospel for us. Many of you have been so hurt. And it's easy and totally understandable that in that pain to just shrink back, say, okay, (laughs) no more. And remember, we've talked about this multiple times throughout the series. There is a time to say, no, separate myself up. Paul says, avoid such people. And that list was irreconcilable. But we don't start there. We start with the heart of God saying, I want reconciliation. And in the same way that God sought me when he was the offended party, I can do that too. So if you have turmoil, especially within your own family, and then secondarily in this family, the family of God, and then you keep working your way out from there. The heart of God is to say, even if you're the offended party, go seek reconciliation. Be a peacemaker, as Jesus has called us to be. Adopt the mindset of Paul, who says, my expectation is you're gonna exceed my expectations. Or in the words of Pastor Tim, hope and be willing to be disappointed. But God will never disappoint you. So even if that comes at great cost to you and great hurt, we're going to bear that together as a family because we love each other. Look around again. For real, look around. This is family. We will love each other well. And so we can step into some hard things and know that even if it hurts, I've got a family that loves me. But more importantly, I'm loved by God. That just results in an overflow of love for others. Love each other well. That is the kind of church that we will be. We are not a church that is going to be known by professionalism. You just listen to me talk for 30 minutes. (laughs) 
We are not going to be a church that's all about flash and pizzazz and great marketing and all that stuff. Like there's a place and we, and we like the words we use, we borrow from another church, undistracting excellence. That's what we want. Undistracting excellence. Excellence is the aim, but not in a way that is distracting and brings the focus on us or distracting that like we just did so bad that it was distracting. That's not just what happens on the stage. That's in every sphere of life of this church. We want to point to the glory of God. We care about each other. Our emphasis is not on good programming or anything like that. I've said this multiple times, but like, you are the program. We, we will do some things that have times and places and stuff like that. But by and large, you are the program. We're just going to be a church that loves each other well, that really, really cares about the things of God, that really loves each other a follower of Jesus, stepping into community of followers of Jesus, and we're seeking to live out his commands and his ways, and we're gonna do that joyfully because that's who we are. That's what he came for us to do. We're gonna be known as his followers by our love for each other, just like he said. Friends that love each other well. That's the simplest I could put it this week. That's, that's what we're gonna be. That's what we are. There's friends that love each other well. And so many other things, like, yes, we, the, the theologian in me wants to put all these caveats, but I just make it simple. Let's love each other well. That's who we are as a church. And when we grow to a point where it's like, it's getting hard to do that, and people are slipping through the cracks, and it just kind of feels like I'm a spectator, and our full intention is to multiply locally. We don't want to be a mega church. We want to be a church where you are known, you are loved, you know that you belong. That is true for each of us a family calling each other onward and upward. He closes the book out saying, verse 25, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. A full circle. It's just grace. It starts with God and it ends with God, not us. Grace be with you. Let this book shape us to see we get to step into this. There's a God who loves us and calls us to love him and to love each other. The beauty of this, that the gospel would undo the evils of this world. And Jesus is truly making all things new. Can you believe this good news? And will you share it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church. Would you make us a people like Paul who would be willing to be disappointed because we would set our expectations so high and we would call each other up and on, that we would see the good in each other and call it out, that we would celebrate it, that we would endure hardship together, but in a way that is full of hope and even joy, because you are our hope and you are our joy. So we love you. I pray that you would shape us further into this, into conformity of the image of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.